Hello, frazzled woman. Welcome to La Vital Core Salon. Are you a type A, an imposter, an activity addict, or maybe even a recovering perfectionist? Are you kind of burning out? And do you secretly crave a hug or a high five? If that's you, you're in the right place and time and space. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Martin-Snyder. Before we go any further, this podcast features adult women having adult conversation. And sometimes it's potty-mouthed. If you have little ones or folks around that won't pardon that kind of French, now's a good time to throw those headphones on. Each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman who is out there leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout slow her down. I want to take some time today to introduce you to FabFom Sally Eckes. And a little about Sally. Sally joined the Lisa Eckes Group in 2009. She represents a wide range of culinary talent, from first-time cookbook authors to seasoned chefs, from professional food writers to bloggers, and internet and television personalities. Sally loves being the liaison between an author and their publisher and takes great pride in guiding authors towards their dreams of publication. From concept to contract, she has brokered more than 80 book deals with many of the top U.S. publishers. Sally loves cooking and conceptualizing new spicy dishes. Check out hashtag SpiceMeSal. Also, she is a dedicated supporter and board member of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is how I really came to know her in the past couple of years. She also belongs to the Women's Presidents Organization, the Hartford Chapter, the International Association of Culinary Professionals, and the Chefs Collaborative, among other organizations. Sally, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. Thank you for having me, Kara. I'm excited to chat with you. I'm so glad you're here. I feel like we have so many questions and so much ground to cover. So much to talk about, yeah. Right? And so maybe just so the listeners get to learn a little bit more about you, you know, these days you, you're a literary agent. You're these even days. <laughs> These days. Yeah. And you're even a managing partner now. And because we're friends... I know you didn't always know that's what you wanted to do. When did you realize you were meant to work with cookbooks and culinary whizzes? Well, I don't know that it, there was ever a specific moment. Um, just to bring people up to speed, I, yeah, I didn't intend to set out and be a literary agent. Essentially, what happened was I was in college and I was studying sociology and psychology and I had been accepted into grad school to get my master's um, in counseling, and I was working in the mental health industry, which sometimes I joke about using those skills and training every day, now working with authors, but the reality is I was essentially trained in negotiations, active listening, building rapport, and communication, and now I get to use those skills in a far less, well, most of the time, less threatening situation. Uh, the context that I was working in before I entered the food industry and publishing um, was as a psychiatric technician. So it was on a locked mental health unit. And I learned a ton, but I was in my early 20s, and it was just really hard. And so a long life turn of events, I moved back to the Pioneer Valley where you and I met, and I started working for Lisa, my mom boss, a.k.a. my boss, <laughs> that I like to call her, and realized that I sort of had been training for this my whole life without realizing it or intending to do this. And that's that's when I started, the blinder sort of came off, and I was like, oh, maybe this is uh, where I can put my skills to the best use right now. This is such a fantastic story, because I, I think, you know, so often we hear about the success, right? Like when women get to that job that is their calling or get to that role in their life that is their calling. But we often don't see all the sort of zigging and zagging along the way, right? Yeah, I've definitely zigged and zagged. Um, I mean, I I sometimes joke that I, I grew up in this industry. So I say to people who re-meet me now later in life, because they say, oh, you know, I knew you when you were this big. And they're like, you know, putting their hands towards their knees, showing how short I was. And I, you know, I'm like, okay, I've been in the industry for more than 30 years. I'm just a lot taller now, and let's let's move forward. Because <laughs> so, it, it wasn't intentional, but I think that's why I think that's why it works so well, and I and I love it so much. 
Yeah, because you were really able to parlay the skills you were building in a totally different world. I mean, literally a different world in terms of careers and then transfer them over. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's logistically and scientifically, it is a different world. But, you know, when an author calls you and their first book cover they hate and this is like their baby that they've been shepherding into the world for two years, you know, they're in crisis mode. And so my job is to reassure them, um, navigate, like, how to handle that situation, be the liaison with the publisher, and, you know, and help them feel like they have a real advocate and someone in their corner. So it's a different industry and it's the same skills. And so that's, that's one of the many reasons I love it. You know, it's not always terrible book covers. A lot of the time it's great book covers and really happy authors too. So being a part of those celebrations, I feel like I'm part of those happy moments more so in this industry than maybe I would have been if I stayed on the really challenging and meaningful path of social work. I'm willing to put some money on that fact. Incorrect. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It really is. Yeah. You know, and as you moved from from the social work world to the culinary world, what has most surprised you along the way? Oh, man. Um, well, sort of, I, I surprise myself. <laughs> it's not so much about what surprises me in the industry, although there are plenty of things that are shocking. Looking back to the first few years when I was in it, I look back to certain maybe meetings I've had that were definitely sexist or gendered or just really hierarchical and inappropriate, um, you know, and that's in any industry. And that sort of, uh, that surprises me looking back, um, although at the time I was pretty naive. Um, but then there are great surprises too, like being a part of a concept, just a gem of an idea over a drink with a client, and then a year later, that book being on the shelf, or talking to someone in a restaurant, and within three seconds of talking to them, just absolutely knowing I want to work with that person, and we're going to make magic together. I mean, I, I love those surprises. And I guess for me, it's just like retapping into the fact that I have I have those like gut instincts and how to cultivate those and bring out different people's creativity and how do I support them in the most effective way for what their goals are and how do we shape those goals together. Like all of those things are surprises to me along the way, probably because I didn't intend to do this and they're just sort of like innate instincts that I'm realizing I have. And then it sort of makes me wonder like, well, what other instincts do I have in me that I could <laughs> be cultivating? You know, it's, what other areas, um, whether they're professional or as a hobby, like can we can we find down the path before after we feel like we've um, sort of been set on a path? How do we find those other surprises about ourselves? If that makes sense, <laughs> it totally does. It totally does, and it inspires, of course, another question in me because you well know. Maybe the listeners aren't familiar yet, but you well know I am an endless fountain of of curiosity and questions. <laughs> yeah. And I think you mentioned something really important, that there's a sense of instinct or intuition about the work that you do. Like when you're out and you're meeting people, you sometimes just, I imagine it's like a vibration in some way, like where you're like, yes, I really want to work with this person. Yeah. How does it exactly show up for you? And, and I guess sort of a part two is, how do you tap into that? Yeah, I, I wish I could answer the second part eloquently because I think tapping into that instinct and intuition is like what would make all of us more efficient and enjoy our jobs, our hobbies more. But for me, identifying it looks like I may stand up a little bit or move to the edge of my seat. It's just this feeling of energy and excitement that I get. And sometimes it's hard because somebody, you know, I'll be out at a conference and I'll be talking about publishing or cookbook proposals or um, how to make money in the industry working with brands, whatever it is. And someone will come up with a full proposal. They've worked so hard on it. It's totally ready. They've built their platform. They're like walking in with, here, here you go. It's all on the table. I've done my homework and I've spent the time getting to the point where now, okay, it's time to talk to an agent. And everything's great on paper, but I just don't feel that. 
connection. You know, I just don't feel that excitement that pulls me up and gets me to the edge of my seat and immediately it makes me start thinking about the editors I would pitch this to or the clients that I would connect them with. And so if that doesn't happen, that's equally as much of a flag in my book to say, okay, this person might be ready on paper, but I'm not the right agent for them. And who else can I connect them with that, that maybe would be a better fit. So it's, it's just like this, yeah, this energy and excitement that I get um, to say, yeah, I know we, I don't know what we're going to do together. Sometimes how I start, but I know we can do something really great. Nice. One of the, one of the questions I ask people a lot of the time, whether it be clients or friends or whatnot is kind of where that registers in their body. Like, is that a gut response? Is that a heart response? Is that buzzing Mm -hmm. in the brain? Like, what does that look like for you? I think it's in I think it's in my heart, somewhere between my heart and my stomach, because depending on if I like the idea or not, it goes one direction or the other. <laughs> Most of the time it goes to my heart. You know, I just I get it, it like starts inside my chest. I get this vibration of excitement and then I smile and then we look each other in the eyes. It's like this professional relationship. You know, you you feel that spark with someone and you just want to be a part of what they're doing and you want them to be a part of the business that you have and that you're creating, you know, because our agency is a brand. And so when I think about the clients that we work with, we look at them individually and we look at them collectively. And so I want to have a diverse client um, base in terms of topic and um, skill and points of their career. And so all of that comes into play, probably not super uh, consciously when I'm talking to people. It's just sort of, it's just part of my makeup to think, okay, how does this person fit in, in our, in our agency as well? And what can we do together? And you're no joke as a businesswoman. Like I've, (laughs) I've seen and heard about some of your negotiation prowess. I guess, you know, there is this intuitive piece, you know, there is this piece that's opening up your heart, like you're feeling it in your gut. But then how do you how do you temper that with really checking in to make sure it's the right fit? Right. Great question. Um, So I would say it's not even so much about tempering it. It's about applying that filter to the negotiation and the business side of it. So when I get excited about working with someone, then I think, okay, you know, financially and, and from a business standpoint, what can I do on behalf of this person and with them for their career, whether it's their first book or their fifth book or their 15th book. So I'm looking for that long-term relationship from a business standpoint, because I can love all my clients, but love isn't going to keep the lights on or the internet working. And so we need to operate in a place that Um, both of those boxes are checked and we can see a beneficial relationship from a business standpoint and I am really excited about working with them. And, you know, and in terms of like advocating and negotiating on behalf of my authors, I, it's taken me a few years to own my style, but I would say one of the things I really love and feel very passionate about my job is that Agents can be seen in very different lights depending on who they are and what their style is. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, when I'm negotiating a deal for somebody, I'm negotiating on one side to another side, and we both want the same outcome. We both want the deal to, most of the time, we both want the deal to move forward. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. We don't want to waste each other's time. Uh, So I do so, I, I negotiate in a way that is friendly and tough and positive and clear and I, you know, I go into every conversation making it very clear that I am not looking to waste anybody's time and I don't want my time to be wasted. So how can we get to the outcome we want in the most efficient, happy, beneficial way for everybody possible? So truly a win-win approach for you. Yeah. Like and, you are you know, really looking for that. Absolutely. And I've been um, in meetings or at conferences where people talk about, you know, the crazy tough agents that they hate negotiating with. And it's like, how how unfortunate for their clients that their reputation is so frustrating that the the initial communication on behalf of this very talented client is is done in such a way that's just not handing that that client off in a positive space 
afterwards, you know, because we're also talking about a creative process and I think infusing positivity in as many points along the way as possible is, is just a really important approach. Got it. Got it. Thank you for sharing some of your approach. I, I think it's it's really important. One of the other questions that I have, or maybe it's an observation, actually. So in the work that I do as a health and lifestyle strategist, I'm talking to, to women behind closed doors, usually one-on-one. And I've been amazed in the last seven years how uncomfortable even some of these super successful type A women that I work with are negotiating as women. What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, negotiating as women, like socially, professionally, emotionally, what would you? I see it on all fronts, all of the above. I mean, I like, you know, total confession. I feel uncomfortable with it if it's not in a professional context. Like for some reason, I can sell a book You know, I can sell a book, but I can't sell my emotional communication, you know, with my family or with my partner, you know, like whatever it is. There's something about being able to put on like my professional hat that makes it easier for me because that seems like, okay, now I'm stepping into the office. Here's the job I have. And it's going to be filtered through my approach and my personality. Um, I'd like to be able to do more of that in the day to day. And I feel like that's something I constantly constantly work on. Um, But I think in terms of tools and tips, for me, again, it just goes back to being mindful and respectful of your own time and space and other people's time and space. And if you, whether you're negotiating like tires for your new car or a contract for a client, what, you know, whatever it is, if you aren't respectful of someone's time, like they're going to remember that and they're going to, that's going to infuse how they work with you when that contract is signed. And that's just not how I want to set up the, the communication and the expectations with anybody I come in contact with, whether it's personal or professional. Do I always achieve that? No, you know, I think it's a constant process, but that's what I strive to, to, to go for. Nice. Nice. And it, it, it brings up another question. Shocker, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think one thing that stuck out as you were sort of answering that last question was, and, and I, I think this rings true to what I've seen on, on my end as the, the active listener, is that there's a difference for women when we are negotiating on behalf of someone else versus yeah. sort of advocating and negotiating for ourselves. Why is that? (laughs) I, you know, I am really trying to figure that out. And it's funny that it's coming up in our conversation today. I mean, it is an important distinction. It, And I mean, truth be told, like when you were talking about it, I was sort of nodding my head and thinking, yeah, when I used to work in troubled debt restructuring and bankruptcy, you know, a lot of time I worked for the debtor. Mm -hmm. That was more my side of the, the business. And, you know, I remember on one job, I actually had to every day at three o'clock get on the phone and negotiate for any any cash payments that needed to go out. So literally, I had to call into a conference line and talk to like, I don't know, five or six dudes Hmm. from major banks in New York, Chicago, all over the place. And literally go line by line arguing why we should pay for wood chips for the furnace. Oh, my God. Or, you know, that the payroll was tomorrow or like those kinds of things. And I mean, you know, jokingly, you know, even my family when I was younger used to call me the pit bull. Like, (laughs) because I would be pretty fierce in those moments. Right. Yet when we have to negotiate for ourselves, it's a very different story. And I know that was a huge bump for me, transitioning to working for myself, Mm -hmm. like just getting paid for my time felt really weird at first. Right. Well, one of the things you once said to me, I, you know, I don't remember exactly the context, but it was if bringing in somebody to help you do this thing that's on your to-do list is going to be a more efficient use of your time and help free up your time that's, you know, X valuable to go do this other thing that you want to do, then do it. It's like, oh right, how seems so obvious to me, but you're always in my head now when I'm trying to determine like what is the most efficient use of my time, what brings me the most joy and meaning, you know, why why can't I apply or how do I rather, how do I apply 
my everyday at work in my everyday, you know, at home and in life too. Oh, my heart's getting a little melted <laughs> when I hear that. Well, Thank you're always, you. it's so, it was so helpful and it was like this aha moment and it, you know, it, it goes back to negotiating on behalf of someone else. Like I, I'll, I'll happily go to, go to the ring for you and I would send you into the ring for me, but what, what am I not stepping into the ring for myself about and how do I like climb over that and, and go for it? Yeah, I think we might have to find some guests to to answer that question. I think it's a really important one, and I don't I don't know that I have the answer, and it doesn't sound like you probably do either. Well, and it's a different answer for everyone. You know, I don't negotiate the same with every editor I talk to. I know what their style is. I know what, how to drop a memo or how to pick up the phone and call them. And so I think it's the same for those scenarios in our in our life. It's it's like what what tools can I draw on? now in this scenario that that'll help like make me a more effective advocate for myself and sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail and I think um, for me in the past few years uh, I've been really actively working at redefining failure as a way to help overcome some of that that fear and um, and take more risks that in that capacity. Ooh, you just opened up a huge (laughs) door for me. You know, just redefining failure. No big deal. Yeah, just just that small thing. Yeah. What, does that, along. what does that look like for you? Um, well, to, it initially looked like actually cheering when you fail. And I learned that from Pam Victor, who is a um, local improviser and teacher. And I joined her improv classes as a way to first help with my professional public speaking uh, fear. And she taught me to literally cheer when you mess up. So the very sort of foundational level of her classes um, that she offers through the Happier Valley Comedy School, you you stand in a circle and she designs uh, fun exercises where you are, it's inevitable that you will mess up and everybody cheers for you. And it brought so much joy to something that I was so scared of that it has really helped redefine redefine failure. Uh, I actually brought her in. She does corporate trainings as well in a through laughter program. And I brought her into our office to work with us on communication and redefining failure. And it's completely changed uh, our our culture. Our, our culture here is, is really strong. And I always try to do like one or two non-traditional team building activities a year. So that was last last year or two years ago. Um, but it's, you know, just being able to celebrate your mistakes, own them, apologize, do right, you know, and move on has been so helpful professionally and personally. I can't even, you know, it's just, it's changed everything. I love it. And then the recovering perfectionist in me. Yeah. <laughs> like literally like, her stomach just turned a little bit yeah, listening. It's pretty cringeworthy sometimes. Like, ugh. Do you think that's helped you become – because, all right, when you think about failure, right, Like, or at least when I do, there's that moment, that oh shit moment, right, where right. you're like, this just blew up spectacularly. That's, that's, that's where I feel it in my stomach. You too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it immediately is a ping to my stomach for certain. So there's that moment when you sort of discover it and you're like, this is a bomb. Yeah. And then there's that moment, you know, and maybe it's an hour later or a day later or a week later where you can mine that experience for all the lessons in it. Mm-hmm. Do you think the improv or being able to celebrate like actually in that moment has made those two points, like the gap between those two points come together more? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, it has reshaped the way in which I understand the world, even beyond failure, but absolutely it, it brings those moments closer together because you, you're still taking ownership and you're still making right. You know, if you, if you fail at something and you make a mistake or whatever it is that you're feeling like you don't measure up or something went wrong, you have an opportunity there. And by redefining that negative feeling, I'm able to harness the opportunity in an even more powerful way. And I feel like it's made me 
more productive, it's made me more efficient, and it's made my mistakes more enjoyable. And also the people that I'm, you know, if it, if it involves somebody else, I think most of the time they're like, whoa, what? I can't, I've, I, I rarely experience people who handle things that way. And then I stand out a little. Maybe I'm crazy, but <laughs> I'm standing out. And that to me is important in a world where I want to contribute something unique. If that's crazy, I want to be crazy. <laughs> I think I think you've got it in you. <laughs> we can work on it. <laughs> so I want to take a little bit different tact here with this next question, if you don't sure. mind. Sure. So, and I, I think, you know, hearing hearing you talk about how you have to relate to people so much, you meet a lot of people in your line of work. I know you're at conferences, you're out and about, you are you are a super connector. And I think that's truly a skill. What makes you such a champ at connecting others? Wow. Well, I, oh, generally speaking, I think I have a, a fairly visual memory and, a, and like a moment-ish memory. I made that psychological term up. As you can see, I didn't carry through with my master's degree, <laughs> uh, my moment-ish memory. But basically, I have this ability to imprint things about people. So I sort of categorize them in, you know, she's a pig lover or he loves mushrooms or this person has three dogs. And so it's the attention to detail that I'm able to, most of the time, you know, generally speaking, like hold in my brain um, that's made me, well, that's helped me enjoy connecting people. You know, if I meet someone at a conference and they're just starting out on a preserving book so, or something, um, I'm going to go back to the office and connect them with all the authors I know who've done preserving books. Because if I can be a meaningful resource to people, whether it's in an industry or personally, then that fuels my passion to connect people and contribute. And I, I just like... I don't know, I like helping people and I like paying attention to the things that they that they like. It's an active process though. I mean, if it's not turned on, I'm totally a fucking disaster and I can't remember shit. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't remember that what I need at the grocery store, but somehow I remember so and so has two kids, what their ages are and what color their bikes are. So, it's it's a skill that has to be turned on and off for sure. <laughs> okay, so when it's on and you're in that kind of mode, like networking and getting to know people like at conferences and especially for any introverts listening, like yeah. that can be excruciating. How do you get to the place where you are learning that their kid's bike is blue and that they're starting fourth grade three Tuesdays from now? Um, well, even for an extrovert, it's hard. I, I drinking helps. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mostly joking there. Mostly the, joking. the ultimate social lubricant. Yeah. But again, I mean, how frustrating is it that that is a helpful lubricant, you know? Um, really, it's about, again, I go back to improv, like following your foot, letting your foot go first, following it and trusting that where it's going is somewhere you need to go. So whether it's walking up to a circle of people who you have no idea who they are and wiggling in and just having that horribly, like, flush, nervous feeling of I'm going to try to make new adult friends and see how this goes, or standing somewhere and having someone you don't know walk up to you and, and taking the risk of talking to them or being in a setting and I can't, well, well here's a sort of weird, lame example, but I whenever I'm at conferences, I assume nobody knows me because when I've been at places and recognize someone and I can't remember their name because I'm not at my desk or whatever con context I know them in, I get totally embarrassed. So I, I say hi to people and I some, you know, sometimes I'll forget their name. Names I'm terrible with, details, everything else is fine. Um, so whenever I'm at conferences, I'll go up to people and say like, hey, it's Sally, nice to see you again. And at this point, sometimes I do that more than I need to. And a few times, you know, I've gone up to an editor and they're like, yeah, I know, We've, we just <laughs> talked, like, you don't have to remind me, like, okay, well, we're in the elevator, it's out of context, you know, so that's a really long answer to, I forget what your question is, um, but details, I feel like standing out, an attention to detail in today's world is rare, and it's a capacity that I love and hold, hold dear, so that's what I try to cultivate in myself, and 
taking that risk, following your foot, because that's the only way you can move forward, um, even if you're uncomfortable and nervous, has proven to be really helpful for me. So cool, because I, I think I've seen you in action. Like, there is nothing I've seen on you the- in action. <laughs> <laughs> but there is nothing on the outside that suggests that you'd be experiencing any sort of nerves in that moment. So I, I have to say thank you for vulnerably kind of putting that out there because it, it doesn't show. And I, I think I, I, I think sometimes that. that's how other women sort of psych each other out. We're like, she just looks so calm, cool, and collected. We're like inside, you know, our stomachs might be doing flip-flops or our heart might be racing. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I've been actively working on it years and years ago when Lisa, my, my moth, was on a panel and I was in the audience. I, she was on a panel with other people and I wanted to ask them a question. So I raised my hand, which in and of itself brought my stomach into knots someone brought over a microphone and I went to hold the microphone and my, my body, I guess, was so physically nervous that my hand was shaking the microphone and I could not hold it steady. My, my brain was saying, hold the microphone steady. And my body was completely rejecting because of physical nerves. And at that moment, I realized that I really didn't have my shit together and my body was able to do things that I, that I couldn't control and being the type A control freak that I am, I was like, I need to rein this in. So let me seek some resources. And those have come in a variety of ways. But it was that moment of being so physically nervous and hearing my voice crack and shake and watching my hand shake that I realized, you know, I, I need to work on this. And I'm really, I'm lucky. You know, there's a variety, there's a whole spectrum of anxiety that I am fortunate enough not to experience. So, I, you know, I can use certain tools and they have a pretty quick um, effect on me. And so I, I empathize with people who, you know, even just going to an event and not talking to anyone, but being there is that first step for them. So I think it's a matter of identifying, like, what is your stretch goal? And how how can you take small interval steps to get there? Okay, so I'm hearing like the first act of bravery is sort of recognizing, like, just get in the room. Right. Right. Like, even if, if it's, it's a real, bomb, you whatever you it is into the room. Yeah. yeah. And then on a second level, you know, what I'm hearing in in that story is, you know, identifying like, where is it sort of falling apart for you? For you, it was like, you know, this, this sort of temporary Parkinson's in a way that sort of emerged in that moment, you know, with a big old hit of adrenaline, probably. Mm -hmm. Sure. And then, you know, and then, you know, if you can identify that, I, I hate to use the word weakness. Like, it's more like an opportunity for growth, right? An opportunity to build some confidence, identifying that. And then as sort of like a third piece in that story that I heard is finding resources that can help. Right. So for women that are experiencing that kind of just terror in that moment, what are some of the resources that really helped you? Well, not to be a broken record, but improv. Improv. (laughs) (laughs) And I I forced myself, (laughs) this is like... This is my approach. Again, not the best one for everybody. But in that moment, I realized, okay, I need to dive all in. And so I started pitching panels where I would be presenting because that was the worst thing I could imagine. It was the most anxiety (laughs) producing. I would have to talk in front of rooms of people. And now I panel all the time. And it's totally fine. And I love it. And I moderate. And it's fun. And do I still get nervous? Yes. But is it an excitement nerves now? Absolutely. And being prepared is a huge part of it. You know, one of the things we do, our agency is a full-service culinary agency. So while I'm a literary agent here, we do consulting, we do talent representation, um, and one of the other services that we offer are media training skills. And years ago, what that looked like was, uh, well, for example, Emeril. Like, he was here for media training way before he was Emeril with BAM, Um, It's essentially a way to teach people how to cook and talk on TV, but it extends beyond just cooking. You know, we do media training for anybody looking to hone their communication skills and work through some of those nerves. So, again, it's finding resources that are going to make that difference. And I started, I grew up around the media training with, with, um, with the people who would come through. And so sitting in on those trainings, putting in, in place some of the skills that we teach during that day or the two-day training, 
that's been really helpful. Improv, you know, finding the resources that work for me. And my approach is to dive into the fearful place. So for me, that was pitching panels. And as soon as my first panel got accepted, which was, you know, years ago, I practiced like a fiend. And that was really helpful. And practicing cannot be under undervalued. Very cool. Very cool. And I still have my fingers crossed for you that we'll be eating tacos together at South by Southwest. My fingers are crossed for that, too. <laughs> um, you know, another question I have for you, you know, and especially you've been around authors, you've been around talent, like, so you've been osmotically taking a lot of this stuff in. And I'm guessing there are some women listening who have thought about writing a book, mm-hmm. you know, and and I guess... I'll leave this to you to sort of make it as general or culinary specific as as you feel best. But what are some of the biggest misconceptions about the process you've witnessed as an agent? Well, the cachet and validity that authors feel is absolutely true and valid. The reality of how much work and how, in most cases, little money there is in book writing is a huge misconception. So when I'm talking with people who think they want to be an author, one of my first questions is why. You know, what is their motivation? And identifying that motivation and then determining if authoring a book is the way to accomplish that or maybe there's another path is, is a big part of it. Um, I mean, writing a book, I'm an agent. Writing a book is awesome. It's a huge, long, hard process. And for nonfiction books, they are sold on book proposals, not complete manuscripts like in fiction. So for most people that I work with, because we don't do any fiction here, I can then say to them, okay, go start on the proposal. And if that feels really good and fun and not this looming thing on your to-do list, then maybe writing a book is in your cards. But first we have to go through this proposal process. And how somebody goes through that process will also help determine if they really want to be an author and can be an author, can be a good author. And there are plenty of people, there's the job of an author, then there's the content and voice of a writer. And sometimes people are really good at being an author and not so good at the writing or vice versa. And so there, you know, there's so many options in between. You can work with writers, there are proposal coaches, we do consults. I mean, there's a million different, again, resources out there. So for somebody who has always said, I think I want to write a book one day. You can start right now, and there are plenty of resources uh, to figure out where to dive in and to determine how it feels and which, which path might be the best path for you. I love it. I love it. And what do you, you know, one of the things I want to clarify in what you said was that there's a distinction between author and writer. Yeah. What, is, what does that mean? Well, there are ghostwriters. Um, I mean, you know, I go into like geek mode. There are ghostwriters, there are co-writers, there are collaborators. Um, but I'm really talking about like what it means to be a good author. <laughs> and, you know, to me, that's the ability to write well and it's the ability to promote and it's the ability to collaborate and it's the ability and willingness to X, Y, Z. So it's it's more than just I want to write a book and I'm going to sit down on my computer and bang it out because I have something to share. Unless you are ready and willing and excited to work with the people who are going to shape it into the best material it can be, you're, you're a, you're a diary entry. <laughs> you know, like it's not, it's not an author. And that's okay. Like there are plenty of places for that. The internet being one of them, you know, um, old school journals being another. But if you, if you want to be the, the job and do the role of a writer and really embody that, I think that takes uh, more than just the ability to type on a computer. Got it. Got it. Wasn't following that distinction initially, but now I absolutely That get might it. be just like an agent distinction because a lot of people write, not everybody is an author. And Got of course, it. there's like the logistical difference of being published, but now there's self-publishing and, you know, there are a million options out there. And it's, it's so funny, I think, just even starting with that question, why at the beginning and understanding people's motivation is so important. You know, I know you know this. But for the for the listeners out there, you know, over the past year, I had been working on a book, you know, working on the skeleton, working on the framework, working on fleshing out the concept enough 
that I even felt like I could put a proposal together. And, you know, talking about zigging and zagging in life earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, as I was going through that process, it was feeling like chewing on nails when I sat down. And then it was funny to sort of get a different perspective on things. I decided I was going to start interviewing women as a way to just get a different perspective and maybe come into the material in a different way. And hopefully it would feel less like eating nails Mm -hmm. every time I sat in front of my computer. That's always a good goal. Yeah. I mean, it should, it should, writing is hard work. Being an author is hard work, but there's a difference between hard work and just spinning your tires. Absolutely. And it was funny, that process of interviewing women led to the birth of this podcast. Yeah. I realized like interviewing women and hearing what they're up to was way more interesting and energizing for me right? than when I took the notes from their interview and started trying to reintegrate them in a different way. Right. So yeah. you never I mean, know. That, There's different avenues. Yeah, I think that's, and that's such a skill and benefit to be able to recognize that about yourself. And when you're working with clients, like, you know, if somebody comes to me and they say, I want to write a book and I ask why, and they say, because I have something to share we might go down this path and realize they're, they really want to teach. You know, they, they don't want to sit at their computer. They've got all this energy and they have something to share and they want to share it in person, you know? And so it's, it's about figuring out what is the best Avenue. And with, you know, today's social media and technology and um, there's just so many options. So you, you're not as limited or pigeonholed as maybe you were 15 years ago when, you know, a book was the way to share your voice. Now there are tons of ways and some of them are far more fun to each person. So like, let's figure that out. Are there questions like if women wanted to contact you, you know, are there questions you would encourage them to think about themselves before they make that reach? Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, I mean, I would, I would much I enjoy and I am of more service to people when they come to the table having done their research in, introspectively and um, professionally. You know, so if somebody wants to write a book or they're looking for a consult, like if you even think you know why and what it is you want, I'm going to be far more likely to help you. If you want help figuring that out, that's absolutely fine too. Um, you know, that's where we do a lot of consulting. And so it's a matter of just asking yourself questions before you do that outreach and really doing your homework. You know, when somebody just calls the office because they, they felt inspired, I empathize with that feeling. You know, I get it. But the reality is, like, I have hundreds of clients. And if you're coming to the table showing me you've done your homework and your research and you're ready for a conversation, you are going to stand out far more than the, the, the general emails that we get and, and somebody who is just looking for an agent. You know, I'm not just any agent. I am Sally at the Lisa Eckes Group. So I want somebody who is interested in me and what our agency has to offer. I'm not the best fit for everyone. And I want to be the right fit for the people who are the right fit for us. So it, just, it goes back to just doing your homework and, and being prepared, even if it's just that first question of what's my goal? What is my intention? Hugely powerful question. Yeah. You know, just figure that out on your own and then contact. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. Kidding. Super easy. Totally. Super kidding. easy. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about your work life and different skills that show up there. And you have generously been sharing stories and ideas and, and advice for people. But can we talk a little bit about life outside of work? Sure. What is that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But I think one of the things people may or may not know, I know I read it in your introduction, but philanthropy and giving back is a huge part of your life. That is true. And I mean, that was how we met back. I mean, we met a little bit before, but we really got to know each other and see each other in action in 2014 when you sort of, you know, drop the question, can I nominate you as woman of the year for LLS? Right. And, you know, I think I sat on it for like 24 hours and I was like, well, the only reason I would say no to this is because I'm not a fundraiser and I'm totally scared of looking like an idiot. And, but we, we got it done and it was a phenomenal experience and it left me with a friendship 
with you in the process. But can you talk to people about how how philanthropy looks in your life, how it shows up? Oh, sure. Um, well, I can try. I mean, it is ingrained in me from day one. So when I was three and a half, I was diagnosed with leukemia and I am now cancer free and very healthy and happy. Um, and what that experience meant aside from a, a myriad of medical and emotional and, you know, all sorts of physical, um, <laughs> just, uh, after effects and, and, you know, there's the logistics of going through a cancer experience as a child that, that shapes you. Um, but really what, I came out of that with was just a huge sense of like giving back. Like that was just a part of my life from the moment I was four years old. And so all I know is picking a chair, you know, we all have our charities, we all have our, our causes. And to me it's blood cancer research. And so I, I started by selling cookies at tag sales and would donate $5 in sales um, and have been involved in, pretty much all of the campaigns that the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has, has ever run. There used to be a Light the Night Walk here. Now they happen, um, the, the, the Pioneer Valley was a pilot program. Now they happen all over the country. I've done team and training, which is part of um, the endurance training program through the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And then the campaign that you and I worked on is um, the Man and Woman of the Year campaign. It's essentially like this blind fundraising competition, which you know how much you've raised, but you don't know how much the other candidates have raised and it's a wild experience. And so like for me, philanthropy is just like, it's part of my DNA. I am alive because of the doctors, the treatment, you know, my own ability. Um, you know, I, I feel like I had, I, I put my mental strength, uh, to work when I was younger and I, I call on that now. Um, I just, I, I'm not being as clear as I'd like to be it, because it's so much a part of like who I am as opposed to an intention. You know, I have, this is my cause that I give back to and that's both in time and in, and in money. And, you know, maybe it started with $25, um, you know, here and there and has grown to different full-blown campaigns and, and experiences and it's connected me with great people. And it's just, it's, it's important to me to, give back to an organization that fund research, funds research that, that truly saved my life and that saves, um, saves so many lives and, and helps contribute to research for other cancers and diseases beyond blood cancer as well. Wow. And I, I think that's a really interesting distinction you make too, that it's not, it never was intentional. It's just at four years old, this was the new normal for you. And this yeah, is I mean, just a part of you. It started with you know, my parents, obviously, really encouraging a sense of giving back. Um, and then it, it, it blossomed in, in different ways. But it's, I, I think giving back, whether it's financially, in time, emotionally, and whatever it is, whether it's a charity or a friend or a neighbor, like, that sense is just an important thing to always be mindful of and cultivate. And so for me, it comes out most clearly through my work with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And for someone else, it might be sending in their annual donation to a different charity or donating their time for a food drive, you know, whatever it is, I think pick one and, and support it. And then also really be respectful of those asks that you get from your friends and family because we're constantly bombarded because there are so many great causes. And so how to communicate what you choose to support and why and how I think is equally as important. So my, my friends in my community feel like I can offer them support uh, in their causes as well because they've been, you and my family and my friends and my professional colleagues, like everyone has been enormously supportive and that, that speaks volumes. I think it's also interesting too that you started with, you know, it started with selling cookies at a, <laughs> at a, at a bake sale, right? And then it moved from there to like when you could donate $25. Right. And I know it's significantly moved up up the food chain for you as, as you've gone both in time and money. And so, you know, this is one of the things that really surprised me when I 
sort of went through that campaign, that there were people who were apologizing for, I can only afford to give you $20 right now or $10 right now, but shared an amazing story or a, a, a personal you know, a personal story that revolved around someone that they know or love having cancer or even themselves. Right. And that was worth $10,000 to me when I was going through the process. And then on the other side, I had friends who wrote an enormous check, but were like, yeah, I just, I don't know how to get involved or like do what you're doing, but I can write the check. So like, I'm just happy doing this silently in the background. And I, I think that's interesting. Like, what would you what would you say to to women that are listening that want to get involved but just feel like they're on one end of the spectrum or another? I mean, like, figure out what feels like a comfortable sense of being in. What does being involved mean to you? Like, does it mean writing that check? Because it's not just a check. You know, that money is going towards a cause that funds whatever it might be. Um, and if it's time and, you know, you, you can't afford or it's just not in your, in your budget or it's not in your plan to donate money, then donate time or donate support. Ask a friend who you know is working on a campaign, how can I help? You know, is there something in my skill set that maybe is of need to you, whether it's organizing an event or um, asking their local school to put out change buckets? You know, it can be something really small that has a great impact. And it's, a, it's about identifying, like, what is your greatest skill that you are looking to contribute and how, how can you contribute it um, to a friend, a family, or an organization? Very cool. Very cool. And I know this is an enormous question, and we could probably both tell, like, a million stories. But what, what has been one of the most unexpected or most rewarding things you've experienced by getting involved in that world? Oh my gosh, <laughs> that is such a loaded question. I know, um, I know. It's almost not even fair. Well, I mean, the, the snippet and snapshot of my life involved with LLS is that I went from, you know, I, it started with selling cookies, and now this past year I was voted onto the board of the Massachusetts chapter, which is just a huge, a, a huge honor and something I truly have been working towards my whole life. Um, so that is, you know, having that recognition and now a board position where that helps me make other asks has been incredibly rewarding. Um, Unexpected, I ran a marathon and I fucking hate running. (laughs) So, you know, just as like a bare bones example, um, the team and training program changed my life. I had never run a mile without stopping to walk when I signed up for my first marathon. And they said, you know, and I didn't even know people run for like time. <laughs> that was that was foreign to me. I I run for like raising money and raising awareness. So I wanted to cross the finish line. That was my goal. They were like, "What's your time goal?" And I was like, "What you mean? What time is it right now?" Not dropping dead. Yeah. Um, but they said, "If you follow this program, you will cross the finish line." And that's what I needed to hear. And so. You know, it's the same way I go into my negotiations. It's the same way I followed my fear of public speaking. Like, I go all in. And the, the, one of the most surprising experiences I've had with LLS was joining team and training, raising money, com- sort of professionally coming out to my, uh, my network and saying, you know, I had childhood cancer. I'm raising money. I'm checking off this thing on my bucket list, which is a marathon, and I hate running. Like, will you support me? (laughs) And the amount of support I got was unfathomable. And then, like you said, the stories that come in, I mean, every donation came in with a story of how cancer has touched that person's life or someone that they know immediately. And that just says to me, there's a shit ton of cancer still. Let's continue to support the elimination and progression of treatment in this in this world because it is making a difference, and there's still more work to be done. Congratulations on Thanks. all of those fronts. <laughs> I mean, we've run together. We know it's it's not my favorite thing. <laughs> no, no. It, on one hot longer run on a Saturday morning, there mm. was lots of "Why am I doing this?" Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> this is why. <laughs> Very cool. And Sally, I want to be cognizant of the time, and I know you're a busy woman, and there are a few more questions I have, and I like to call this the champagne round. 
Sure. And these are some... I love a, sh- a good champagne round. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> and these questions are a little bit shorter in form, and I like to ask every guest. So think of them as little tiny bubble-like questions. Okay. And so first one is, what song pumps you up or soothes you when you most need it? Well, if you've ever been at a wedding with me or late night dancing, inevitably I will go over to the DJ and say, do you have Carl Carlton's She's a Bad Mamma Jamma? And (laughs) if you play that, I get real pumped up. So that's, yeah, look it up. She's a Bad Mamma Jamma. That's my pump up song. I feel like I'm going to have to start, as I do these podcasts, I'm going to have to start like a playlist on Spotify of all oh, the man. pump up and soothe you songs. If from... you could just cut to that song for a minute as you're editing this, that would be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I don't know if I can afford the rights for that, but we'll oh, work true. on it. Don't you know someone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here's another question. What book, film, or other type of art do you go back to for inspiration again and again? Oh, well, I've, you know, I'm going to be a broken record at this point, but improv, you know, (laughs) this is where I watch the shows, I go to shows, I read the books, you know, this is where I, I finally feel like I found a hobby and it's where I go for my, for my inspiration and and release. Has Pam put you in a commercial yet? I don't think so, but she should. (laughs) I think so. I think so. I'm like the poster child of how improv changed your life. (laughs) I but it, think. I think that's good for people to hear, though, because I, I think before meeting you, I never really thought about the quote unquote practical applications of it. Oh, man. I mean, there's a whole international conference of applied improvisation where it's people in professional settings teaching and talking about how they apply the principles of improv to their professional careers. I mean, it's. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know either, but it's out there and it's making a huge difference. That would be something awesome if you get a chance and I can add that to the show notes so people can check that out if they're interested. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And what's your favorite tool, app, or gadget these days? This may not shock you, but my tortilla press. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bit of a taco fan and uh, my tortilla press is absolutely my favorite gadget. It's out in my kitchen. It's the most used tool. So homemade tortillas, people, listeners, if you want to change your life, you know, it's one thing to like identify your goal. It's another to have a handmade tortilla. <laughs> all I'm saying. On the spectrum of things, we have goal setting right. and tortillas. If, yeah. If you want to, you know, make a difference and find your intention in the world, do it over a taco. I always talk about you know, that my goal for this work is to always help women get closer to living a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Love it. Uh, and then I think the parenthetical should probably just be something about tacos. Homemade I'm on board. tacos. Yeah. All right, we'll work that out. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you organize and manage your tasks on a day to day basis? Oh, it's a really formal system of whiteboards, sticky notes, electronic lists, <laughs> and uh, yeah, just constant sticky note whiteboard chaos. Um, it's a great system. It works for me. I haven't, I haven't really gone into any of the apps that are out there yet to the displeasure of people I work with, but it's sticky notes. Can't be, you know, sticky notes are where it's at. Lists. Yes. The difference. Post-its all over walls are Post-it. pretty much how I get done conceptual projects. So... Yeah, you've seen, I think you saw for a speaking event I did when I was putting together a speech and really sharing my story for the first time in its entirety. And I think you saw a snapshot of like the entire bedroom wall of our house littered with like very even columns of post-its. Yeah. That's definitely what bedroom walls are for. Yeah. Poor Craig has to just (laughs) sleep in a beautiful mind all the time, but... (laughs) you do what you got to do. Absolutely. And here are some questions about being women. And as I talk to women, I think it's important to hear different perspectives. And so how would you define being a modern woman in 2016? You know, you've asked me this question before, and it's, it's a tough one. I mean, because I am a woman in 2016. So by default, that makes me modern, right? I mean, (laughs) I... I think it's about 
taking risks, communicating with one another, advocating, and and let, yeah, letting go of some of our of some of our fear and our insecurities as actively as we can. So that last bit almost sounds like what you would like to see modern women give less of a shit about. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we focused our type A energy on the positive rather than the insecurities, we would be unstoppable. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the shared insecurities and fears that we experience are, are prominent. And, you know, that's how so many of these conversations start. And what would it be like to be in a world where we shifted some of that energy and our mental space and our efforts towards caring and supporting more than you know, fear and, and insecurity. And if that's something that you already do, that's, that's fantastic. And I think that goes back to, to being a modern woman and, and supporting, um, supporting one another and our, our planet in a way that's, that's really intentional and positive. So conversely, and I, I think you partially answered it, but on the other side, what would you like to see more modern women give a shit about? I mean, tacos, again, I just think they are a real key to, to nutrition, homemade food, you know, what they, all jokes aside, like what they embody is like connecting with our food, freshness, spice, flavor, um, they can be vegetables, they can be meat, they can be uh, sauce, I mean, there's just, it's like an endless pocket of possibilities, let's care about that. <laughs> that might be like a new, I feel like this needs to make its way to social media somehow. Endless pockets of possibility. Taco as possibility. A Ooh. panel of Kara and Sally in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> you will most likely find us at Torchies eating our body weight in tacos. Taco about women. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag taco about women. And so before I let you totally get out of here today, I want to offer you the mic. And what do you most want the Vital Core Salon listeners to know? Oh, man, I, I feel like it's just been an incredible opportunity to have this conversation today. And I want, I want the listeners to know that I, I wanted to do this podcast because I think you're incredible and I think the the work that you do is incredibly meaningful and I love I love collaborating with you. And I think it's important to go outside of our comfort zone. You know, this I don't I haven't done a bunch of podcasts. This was, you know, fun and exciting and um a little anxious for me. And so I think it's about knowing how to identify some risks and taking those risks that are really really fun. Thank you. I I dare say you can't make me cry on my very second <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I <can> cry? <laughs> no. Also, what's wrong with crying? Crying's great, you know. I know. I'm so I'm sure there'll be guests that trigger like some sort of schmoopy response, but I'm really <laughs> trying to like hold it together. Yeah, at least at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, you know. You know, I'm tough. <laughs> <laughs> you are tough. <laughs> I, I can be. I, I The pit bull hasn't completely gone dormant in me. Yeah. Um, and one last question. Sure. If women want to learn more about you, the Lisa Eckes group, your work, yeah. your philanthropy work, how can they do that? Well, I so appreciate that question, too, because I love connecting with other smart, powerful, successful, fun women. So you can find me on our website, www.lisaekus.com. You can find me on most social media accounts at Sally Eckes, S-A-L-L-Y-E-K-U-S. And you can find me at different conferences and different events around the Pioneer Valley and different cities around the country. And if you and I are at an event and you've listened to this podcast, I would love for you to follow your foot and come up and talk to me so we can be real life friends and connectors beyond uh, this initial meeting through the podcast. Oh, my goodness. Sally. Thank you so much for being Thank here. You. I wish you could see my both my hands are on my heart and I'm smiling from ear to ear. Oh, Thank okay. you so much for being here and really, truly sharing some of your gifts 
and really, you know, giving advice and breaking down how you do what you do for people listening. Thank you. Thank you, Kara. Hiya, this is Kara again. Thanks for tuning in. All of today's show notes can be found at Le Vital Course Salon and then clicking on blog. New shows will be up the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month, so stay tuned and do come back. Before I bounce, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to my producer Craig Snyder and to Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for my most excellent theme music. And don't forget women, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let burnout or bullshit slow you down. Until next time.